So I have the privilege of serving with university students in the UAE. And like you heard before, the organization is called FOCUS, which stands for the Fellowship of Christian UAE Students. A few years ago, we had the privilege of doing a short-term trip with our students to Lucknow, North India. Now, one of the fascinating things that we did on that trip um, was on the day off, we got to visit an ancient palace of an important official who lived a very long time in India, long time ago in India. The interesting thing about this palace was that the owner had constructed a maze inside it. Now, you might be wondering, why would anyone construct a maze inside their palace? It is not cultural. It is not part of our Indian culture to have a maze inside our house. It was actually a clever thing for him to do. It was a system that he devised to be able to hide from thieves and robbers and bandits. And only he knew the right way out of it. Now, the way this maze worked was that there were three wrong turns that you could take for every right turn. Now, naturally, when we heard about this, our team was very excited to go and explore this maze, but we soon regretted it. Inside the maze, we had to climb a number of stairs, walk through hot, narrow corridors. On top of that, our tour guide had a very cruel sense of humor. He would take our entire team up and down and round and round, and then finally he would turn around and tell us that we've reached a dead end. Now, after he had done this about three or four times, we were beginning to wonder if even he knew how to get out. We were worried that we were going to be lost there forever, terrified that nobody was going to be able to find us. I was already crafting in my mind the letters that I was going to write to the parents who had entrusted the lives of their children into my hands. I am sorry that your son, daughter, did not return from Lucknow because they were stuck inside a maze. Suffice to say, we were never so glad to be out in the scorching hot sun of Lucknow than that day. Being lost is a terrible experience, isn't it? One that is common to all of us, but it never gets any easier. Well, in today's passage that we are going to read, we are also going to see a man who is lost and what God does to find him and rescue him. Now, if you have grown up in a Christian background, if you have grown up going to church, you would be very familiar with the story that we're going to read this morning. You might even have grown up singing songs about this man. But I pray that God will allow us to see this passage in a new way, in a fresh way this morning. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, 
for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now the story that we read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 happens towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of Luke. The destination that Jesus is going to is Jerusalem. And we all know what happens in Jerusalem, don't we? It was there that he was flogged, mocked, and killed brutally on the cross. But in this last episode before Jerusalem, Jesus takes time to stop in the city of Jericho, interact with a man whose name is Zacchaeus. And even this story, is all about Jesus fulfilling that great mission that he said he has come into this world for. As he says in verse 10, it is the Son of Man coming to seek and save the lost. Now, there are three things that we want to see in the passage this morning. For those of you who are taking notes, these are the three points of my sermon. Number one, Jesus seeks and saves. Jesus seeks and saves. Number two, Jesus received and rejected. Jesus received and rejected. And the last point is Jesus transforms hearts and lives. Now, by the time Jesus has entered Jericho, he's become quite famous. There is a crowd that is gathered in Jericho to see Jesus. Now, Jesus has done some amazing things so far in the Gospel of Luke. He has healed all kinds of sicknesses. He's cast out demons from people. He's even raised the dead. Many people looked up to Jesus as an important religious figure. Some people even wondered, could this be the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years? Could these be the signs that he would do? When he comes. So naturally, everybody wanted to see what Jesus was going to do next. Now, at this point in the story, Luke zooms in on one particular man who is also there to see Jesus. And we are told that his name is Zacchaeus and that he was the chief tax collector. Now, if you have read the Gospels, this should be a term that should be very familiar to you. Unfortunately, they always come in a group that is called sinners and tax collectors. So the way someone would have treated a tax collector in that society would be very much like how they would have treated a murderer, an adulterer, or a thief. They were seen as the outcast, people who are unclean. Even religiously speaking, the tax collectors would have been kept from doing some of the things that would be common for a Jewish person to do like going to the temple to pray, 
this was the world that Zacchaeus lived in. In the minds of the people that were around, Zacchaeus couldn't have been more far away from God. Spiritually speaking, if you had asked anyone, they would say that he was lost. Now it's worth taking a moment to think about what does it mean when the Bible uses the word lost? In fact, as we read the scriptures, we come to see that it is not just the sinners and tax collectors of the world who are lost, but the Bible says that everybody by nature are lost. In fact, it says that we were born into this condition which we have inherited from our great-grandfather, Adam. This is not the way God intended for us to be. This is not how he created us. Our God, who is holy and loving, created us in his image to be like him, to reflect his glory, to live in a perfect, loving relationship with him. But we rebelled against him, his authority in our lives. So it is on account of our sin, then, that we are lost. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. As a result, we are cut off, separated from God. The prophet Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our lostness does, does not just mean that we are going to be separated from God in this life, but it means that for all of eternity, we are going to be separated. We deserve to be separated from His love, His goodness, His grace. And what we deserve is His just wrath, His righteous condemnation for us because of our sin. Friends, it's hard for us to think of ourselves this way, isn't it? Sinful people who deserve to suffer in hell for all of eternity. I'm sure we can think of some people who would fit that description, right? Murderers, evildoers, Hitler. We will not understand how sinful we are until we understand how holy God is. God is holy. He is nothing like us in terms of his moral purity. And once we come to see his holiness as he's revealed himself in his scripture to us, we will be able to understand that we too are sinful people who deserve his judgment forever. What's worse is that the Bible says that there is nothing we can do to help ourselves. Sin has bound our hands. As capable as we think we are, we have not devised a solution to solve the problem that we face standing before a holy God to whom we must give an account to. But the amazing thing is that God had a plan for people who are lost like us. And this is the very reason why Jesus says he is in this world, to seek and save the lost. God showed grace to an undeserving world. He poured love into our unlovable lives at a great price, which came at a great cost to himself. Let's see how he does that in this passage in Zacchaeus' life. Back to the story. 
So Jesus was walking through Jericho. It seems like he has no plan to stop until he comes to that very tree that Zacchaeus is sitting in. And then he calls him, looks up and calls him, Zacchaeus, verse 5. You see, Jesus was being very intentional here. This was no accident. This was no chance encounter. This was a divine appointment. This was the very reason why Jesus was interrupted on his journey to Jerusalem. This was the reason why Zacchaeus was there, even though Zacchaeus didn't know it. Now, there were plenty of other people that would have been easy for Jesus to call and be with. But he calls, in this story, someone who is very difficult to find. A short man, kind of hidden in a tree, lost. That's who Jesus finds and calls. In finding Zacchaeus, we see how our Savior searches and seeks for those who are lost in this world. Doesn't he do the very thing that he says the good shepherd does in John chapter 10, verse 3? He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Friends, our Savior has come not just to save, but also to seek those who are lost. Now, just a few chapters earlier, chapter 15 of the book of Luke, Jesus drives home this point with a few parables. In one, he tells us about a shepherd who, when he has lost one of his sheep, leaves the other 99 to go look for that one. And when he finds it, there is great joy because the one that was lost was so precious to him. In another parable, he tells us about a woman who who has lost one of her coins and she seeks diligently till she finds it. She lights a lamp. She does not stop searching till she finds it. Jesus was using these parables to explain how God searches and seeks out those who are lost and how precious they are to him. Friends, even today, God is in the business of actively seeking and searching those who are lost in this world. Now, this should give us great hope as Christians who are seeking to share the gospel with those that do not know him. I don't know about you, but oftentimes, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone who seems particularly hard to speak to, I find myself wondering if there is any hope for them to be saved. I write people off. Look at Zacchaeus in this passage. Everybody else had written him off, but God hadn't. So let me ask you this. Are there people in your life right now that you are tempted to think will not believe in Jesus? Are there people that you are tempted to give up on because they seem too hard-hearted to be saved? Are there people maybe with whom you have been sharing the gospel with years on end, maybe a close friend, maybe a family member, but you're seeing no progress whatsoever? But friends, don't be discouraged. Take heart, because like we see in this passage, there is no one who is too lost for God to be able to find. Now we see in the story that not only does Jesus seek the lost, but he seeks them to save them. 
Look at verse 5. Jesus makes a very unusual request to Zacchaeus. He demands that he must go to his house and he must stay there. And in verse 9, we see an amazing thing happening. Jesus says that salvation has come to him. Jesus' desire was more than just to be a friend of Zacchaeus. His desire was more than just to do the thing that nobody else would do. No, Jesus was going after his soul. His intention was for Zacchaeus to come to know him. Jesus going and living in Zacchaeus' house is a picture of what it looks like when someone comes to know Christ. Christ takes up residence in their hearts and lives. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now let's not forget what it would have cost Jesus to associate with a man like Zacchaeus. No other religious figure would have ever done such a thing. And any kind of reputation that Jesus had up until this point of being an important religious figure would have been shattered. But imagine Zacchaeus. He would have felt loved and accepted by God that very day. But even Zacchaeus had no idea the lengths to which Jesus was going to go to love and save a sinner like him. The ultimate expression of God's love and fulfillment of God's plan to rescue the lost happens just a few days after this. And it happened on the cross. It was on the cross that the one who knew no sin became sin itself. It was there that he was brutally killed, executed unjustly. It was there that he took our place bore the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins in our lives and through that achieved salvation for us. On the third day, proving to the world that his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God, he rose from the dead. And now, as a result, sinners like you and me who were once separated from God, cut off, who had no hope of reconciliation with God, are brought into the very family of God. We are made sons and daughters of His. What a great privilege. What a great status we have. It is on the cross that we see most clearly displayed the love of God for the lost and the amazing work that He has done for their salvation. For those of us who are in Christ, we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has done everything for our salvation. There is nothing left. He said, it is finished. But sometimes, if we are honest, we find it hard to find joy in this truth, don't we? When circumstances change, when situations in our life become difficult, when we lose our jobs, when we lose our loved ones, or when our struggle with sin seems to be too hard to fight or even hopeless. It's hard to find joy in this truth, isn't it? Friends, we need only to look at the cross. And no matter what changes in our lives, 
There is one thing that will not change. In Christ, our salvation stands secure forever. Now we have seen what Jesus has done, that he's come to seek and save the lost. The second thing we are going to see is the response that people have to the work that he has done. Jesus received and rejected. Let's take a look at Zacchaeus' response to Jesus. Now notice in verse 6, when Jesus calls Zacchaeus, he hurries down, he receives him, and he receives him joyfully. Now, personally, I would have liked to see the word faith mentioned in this passage, but it's not. But we have a picture of what faith looks like here. Faith is receiving Christ and receiving God's gift of salvation that he offers in Christ to us. On the other hand, notice the response of the crowd that are watching Jesus. Just a few moments earlier, they were enamored with him. They wanted to be with him all the time. They couldn't get enough of him. But now, they grumble. Why? Verse 7. They take issue at the fact that Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The response shows that they do not get who it is that Jesus has come into this world for, even though many times he has taught them before that he has come for the sick, not the healthy. He's come for the sinner, the unrighteous, not for the righteous. The problem was that they could never admit that they too were sick, that they too needed Christ as much as Zacchaeus did. For to do so, they would have to give up any sense of self-righteousness that they were holding on to. So in their grumbling, they reject Christ and they reject the only hope of salvation that they have in their lives. Well, I hope you see that Really, there are only two responses to Jesus. And everybody in this world, right now, falls into those two categories. Either people have received him or they have rejected him. But there is nobody who is neutral to him. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. But how wonderful for those who do receive him. Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus got far more than he came for that day. All he wanted to see was just a glimpse of Jesus. He was there just to be able to see Jesus a little bit better. That's all. But it was clear that even the reason why he was there was because God was already at work in his heart. Why else would he have done such an undignified thing for a rich man to climb up in a tree to see Jesus? Friends, just like Zacchaeus, there may be some of you here this morning just to be able to see a glimpse of Jesus, just to get to know him better. But I want to encourage you to be open to the possibility that God may have bigger plans for you today. 
Perhaps he brought you here to help you see your own lostness and how desperately you too need Jesus to save you from his judgment. Perhaps he brought you here this morning because he is offering you that free gift of salvation in his son Jesus. And it's yours if you will have it. I want to encourage you. This is you receive Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in him alone for your salvation. He promises to forgive you. He promises to give you life, life eternal. Now we have seen what Jesus has done. We have seen the different kinds of responses that people can have to what he does. Finally, we want to see how Jesus transforms hearts and lives. Notice the amazing transformation that has happened in Zacchaeus' life. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, What's amazing is what Jesus says after that in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, we have to ask this question. Did Jesus mean that Zacchaeus was saved on account of what he did? In other words, is Jesus saying, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, compensate people that you have hurt in your life, and then God will save you? Absolutely not. Now, Jesus is pointing out what is behind this man's amazing transformation. And he's saying, it is God's salvation in his life. So any kind of change, any kind of transformation that we see in a Christian's life happens only as a result of God's salvation coming into their lives. It is because of genuine conversion that has happened, not the other way around. So also, Christians, remember that when God saves, it shows. When God saves, it has to show. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And then in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now notice the kind of transformation that has happened in his life. Did you notice that there are two things that he resolves to do and those two things are similar? Both those things have to do with giving. Now Luke throws in this extra detail for us. He tells, that, that tells us that Zacchaeus was a rich man. So it's very likely that Zacchaeus's greatest idol his greatest treasure in his life was his money, his wealth. Now, what is interesting is that if you flip one chapter back, you will notice that Luke tells us another story, also about another rich man who comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. But unfortunately, in that story, the man is unwilling to walk, part with his wealth and he walks away. 
Jesus tells us why he does that. Luke 18, 24 to 25. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound difficult. That sounds impossible. Jesus continues, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, it is impossible for this rich man or really any man to give up the greatest treasure in their life and follow Christ. In this man's case, money was his God. Everything that he did was to serve and worship money. But look at the passage that we are reading this morning. Zacchaeus, who was another rich man, literally gives away everything that he has, even without Jesus asking him to do so. How did that happen? It's clear his allegiance has shifted from God of wealth, the God of money, to the true and living God. So it's really no coincidence that these two stories come right next to each other in the Gospel of Luke. I think the point that Luke is trying to make is that he's telling us that it takes a supernatural act of God for any man to enter the kingdom of God. Certainly, Zacchaeus didn't do it himself. This was God doing the impossible in Zacchaeus' life. Notice how much he gives away. He says he will give away half of his possessions to the poor. Can you imagine the line that would have formed outside Zacchaeus' house when all the rich people in Jericho came to hear about this? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that he's deciding to pay back with interest all, that, all those people that he has defrauded. Now, technically, according to the Levitical law, Zacchaeus was required to pay back only with a 20% interest. But notice how much he decides to pay back. Fourfold. That's 400%. There was no law, no obligation, no requirement for him to do so. In fact, it's very likely that Zacchaeus lost all his wealth that day. Friends, it's very clear what has happened. Zacchaeus has gone from being greedy to generous, from being selfish to selfless, from living for himself to denying himself completely for Christ. And it all points back to that amazing conversion that has happened in his life. Now, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, what is the lesson for us from this passage? Is God asking us to sell all our possessions and give it to the poor? Is God telling us to quit our careers, our job, and serve Him in full-time ministry? Does it mean that if we continue to live the lives we live, that we are not Christians? Absolutely not. It is possible to pursue these things in life by keeping Christ first. But I wonder if you find yourself asking a question that sounds something like this, which is, what is the minimum that is required of me as a Christian? Or 
what is the minimum in terms of how much time, how much energy, or how much money I am to give to God and His people? Do you maybe sometimes find yourself keeping a record of all the things that you have done so that you can feel like you have done enough for God? Do you sometimes find yourself getting maybe upset or resentful when you are asked to give more or serve more or do more? To be honest, I find myself thinking like this a lot. Friends, we should not think of our Christian lives as just doing what is enough and nothing more. You know why? Because extravagant grace that we have experienced from Christ calls for us to show extravagant obedience. Extravagant grace calls for extravagant obedience. The same grace that was shown to Zacchaeus that caused this amazing transformation to happen in his life is made available to everybody who is in Christ. It is this grace that leads us to live radical lives for Christ, to live lives that glorify Him, to live in such a way so that when the world sees, it's clear that heaven is our home. Now I want to add that as someone who is coming from the outside, even just having spent a limited amount of time with you all, I am encouraged by the ways I see you all growing in your love for each other, you all growing in your desire to serve each other. It's amazing to see you treasure Christ and his gospel in this church. It's amazing to see how you pray and the things that you pray for. Friends, I am encouraged and I praise God for the many, many evidences of genuine conversion that is seen in this church. And I hope you are too. But on this side of eternity, we will always have to grow. And there will always be times when we will struggle to keep Christ as the greatest treasure in our lives. And we should remember during those times when it is hard that being loved and accepted by Christ is greater than any gold or silver that this world has to offer us or that we're called to give. When we fix our eyes on Christ and the incredible work that he has done for us, we will, by his Spirit, be enabled to serve selflessly, give generously, and love unconditionally. It is only when we stay and stare at the gospel that we will be able to see our obedience to Christ is not just another chore that we have to fulfill this week, but we will delight in doing the maximum for our God and our Lord. In closing, why shouldn't we? God sent his one and only son to come into our world and to search for sinners like us. He died on the cross, bore the judgment that we deserve, and because of that, and only because of that, we are found and we are saved. What a marvelous Savior we worship. Let's give up all our lives in worship to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this amazing gift that you have given us, which is your son. We recognize, Lord, what a great price you had to pay 
and what a great cost you had to bear. But thank you that because you have done those things, now it is freely available to all of us. God, we pray, Lord, that we will continue to meditate, reflect on the work that Christ has done for us. And as we do so, we pray that you would transform us by your Spirit so that we may look more and more like your Son, Jesus. We ask and pray all this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.